This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten filling in for Buck Sexton from the very tiny little safe space in New York City. One of the only ones, perhaps the only safe space. As I mentioned, this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck. I'm a senior contributor at The Federalist. You've heard me on this program probably before. Please follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten and also subscribe to my newsletter at bit. Dot Lee slash BHW News. Right, we've got a lot to get to today, and I want to jump right into it. We're going to talk a little bit about impeachment and the broader significance, because it really transcends a phony impeachment inquiry that the House is undertaking right now. We're going to talk about China, which has been thrust back into the news. I, it seems I always end up talking about it on Buck's show, but it makes sense because it is the most vital national security and foreign policy issue from an external perspective that we face. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the future of America and kind of the underlying fundamentals that will dictate the future of this nation, some of the challenges we face, and then some of the solutions. And I'm also going to clue you in and let you be the first to know publicly about a big announcement that I have coming up. So stay tuned for that. But let's start with impeachment. Nancy Pelosi didn't just launch an impeachment inquiry. First of all, she didn't do it on the basis of a vote, so it isn't really a legitimate inquiry, quote-unquote. We've been witness to a rolling lynch mob masquerading as an impeachment inquiry since before Donald Trump was elected president. And it really is amazing when you step back and think about it, by the way. You know, Donald Trump cast himself as the dealmaker. So why couldn't the establishment make deals with him? Why couldn't they just treat him like any other politician? I think the evidence suggests that they viewed him as someone who actually would do, and he has done, by the way, to an extent like no other president really in my lifetime, certainly, and probably beyond, has kept to his word. He said he was going to shake things up. He was going to be a dealmaker on behalf of the American people, the forgotten American people, who the 10% or less of the elites in our country have ignored and held in disdain for decades with disastrous consequences for the country. It is one of the great ironies in history that the political establishment, and this is a right and left thing. Yes, it's led by the Democrats and the folks in the deep state and throughout the administrative state. Yes, of course, they lean left. But even quote unquote Republicans and even probably some people who would call themselves conservatives are a part of this as well. Donald Trump was viewed as an existential threat to their power and prerogatives. And what you're seeing in response, is an unprecedented, at least that we're aware of because it's never been more transparent, an unprecedented attempt to throw everything they have at Trump, not necessarily just because of who Trump is as a person, although that's certainly a part of it, but because of what he represents, a direct threat to their gravy train. Ultimately, they care about power and their progressive ideology is the means to that end. So as I said, this quote-unquote impeachment inquiry has really been going on since before the man was elected. And let's set aside for a moment that in part, 
This is being raised now, not only in the run-up to the election, but also so as to kind of provide some misdirection, to obfuscate from the investigations of the quote-unquote investigators that have been ongoing. Because you sort of have two things here. On the one hand, you have the actual foreign collusion conducted in order to try to take down Trump in secret, nefarious, that's only been exposed in drips and drabs against all odds. And then on the other side, you have an attempt right out in the open, right down to the fact that you have the president declassifying phone call transcripts and all sorts of other documents right out in the open to investigate the misdeeds of the people who were actually engaging in foreign collusion. So yes, part of this is to try to get out in front of the bad news that's coming as the real story is exposed, little by little. But it's bigger than that. And in this unprecedented, at least to our knowledge, effort to try and take Trump down, it is really about taking what Trump represents down. And they are using every possible tool, legal, extralegal, and illegal, in order to do so. Really what this is about at the end of the day is, are we the people sovereign? Do individuals, regardless of political stripe, get to take advantage of the privilege of presumption of innocence? Does due process exist? Is there one American standard or are there double standards and maybe triple and quadruple standards, the establishment and everyone else? I think it's very clear where it looks like things are right now. We saw during the Kavanaugh trial, for example, and Kavanaugh, by the way, is someone who would probably rank among the establishment himself, someone who worked on behalf of the George W. Bush administration. Look at the way he got attacked and believe all women was the charge. In other words, Kavanaugh is de facto, if not de jour, guilty. He's, he's guilty from the start because he is a white male of privilege. That is not the American system. That is not colorblindness. That is not content of character. And you're seeing the application of that exact sort of worldview and that exact, exact sort of mentality when it comes to the quote-unquote impeachment inquiry. What this is about are those fundamental pillars on which our country is based. It's about whether the administrative state, led by the deep state, that is, this massive bureaucracy that seems to really run the show, even though their job is to be delegated power by, government, by, by the president, by the executive branch, the president holds all the power in the executive branch, he delegates it down to these people, they work for him, he doesn't work for them, he doesn't take direction from them, they can't sabotage him. They are. They're not supposed to. Does the president have the right to be a president that we have delegated him and he's delegated that power down to these officials who are supposed to work under him? So is the president allowed to achieve his agenda? Does he have a right for the executive branch officials in all of these agencies to follow orders? Or is the president just a figurehead and these millions of bureaucrats are actually the ones who run the show? And again, what I would suggest is that the fact the political establishment has had to resort to shenanigan after shenanigan, endless supposed conspiracies that they're hysterical about day after day, sabotage from within, leaks, phony whistleblowers, spying and FISA abuse, lying, obfuscating, 
holding private hearings to create the illusion of nefarious and top secret activities, and then having the Democrats who run these committees going out and leaking only the tidbits that work for them. Game playing with redactions, essentially witness tampering. All of this indicates that the establishment is unable to grapple with Donald Trump on the merits and treat him like any other elected official, and certainly not with the deference and the respect that he deserves. They want to make an example out of him, and that's why they're throwing every last thing in the kitchen sink that they've got at him, because he is, again, representative of a challenge to their authority. They view him as a mortal threat to their existence. But consequently, what does that mean? They view you, me, we the people, a mortal threat to their existence, and we're to be rejected, and our will is to be denied. That is the real symbolic and substantive significance of quote-unquote an impeachment inquiry and everything that has preceded it. Because basically what you have is one long-running fishing expedition, convictions, endless convictions in search of crimes. And the fact that you have the full resources of the U.S. government and the media and more on the anti-Trump side trying to take him down with everything they have and they still can't really find anything is amazing. It is truly amazing. And we should stop and acknowledge how amazing that is for a second. The reality is that the voters provided a loud and clear message to the supposed experts and leaders in Washington in 2016. And three years into this temper tantrum and all these nefarious acts that I've laid out, they continue to be unable to accept reality. They can't just respond to the voters. They can't change their ways because changing their ways would mean sacrificing their power and their prestige, their livelihood. Again, Donald Trump put himself out there as a pragmatist, someone who is pragmatic and practical over being rigidly ideological. That they refuse to deal with him as such has led him to take a much harder line than he might otherwise have taken. Another major irony in all of this. Now, on this impeachment inquiry, I have thought to myself over and over again, you know, why would Nancy Pelosi do this, launch this impeachment inquiry that isn't really an impeachment inquiry by any legitimate sort of standard because, again, there's been no vote on it. She's not operating according to regular order. And we'll go through the administration's response to it, a brilliant letter written by White House counsel that goes through how illegitimate this exercise is. I believe that Nancy Pelosi is a smart, shrewd political actor. She may lack charisma. She's obviously an ardent leftist, even though she is now portrayed as being a relative moderate because her party is so far left. I think she views this two ways. One is she needed to appease the more than 40 percent of Democrats in the House who are part of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And this was a way to throw them a bone. I think it's a way that the Democrats can fundraise off of this. It's a way that she can run an impeachment effort without it actually being a legitimate impeachment effort where the other side actually has a chance to subpoena witnesses and the like because she doesn't wa- – she wants it to be a controlled and staged process. She doesn't even need to bring it to a floor vote ultimately in part because I think she knows how disastrous it would ultimately be. We may get there. I mean we may get a vote in the House and they may vote to impeach and obviously you won't have a similar vote in the Senate. So it will be a losing effort. But I think this is in part about appeasing the progressives. It's in part about something they can fundraise on. It's in part about let's create as much smoke as we possibly can endlessly day after day and see if that is the thing that finally chips away 
at the president's core support. I don't think that's going to be the case. My view of it is this. First of all, there is fatigue. I think there is real palpable fatigue among anyone who's really been watching these stories closely. Really, once the Mueller report, quote unquote, came out, I think that was the end, ultimately, for anyone who was being at all intellectually honest about this. I think the reality is that before Donald Trump was even inaugurated, you had somewhat less than half the country who felt he's a traitor and the worst person ever and evil and the like and a a future dictator. And they were going to believe anything that's thrown at them. And then you have about half the country, on the other hand, who was either skeptical of that narrative and their skepticism has proven beyond warranted or they were outright supporters of Trump. Trump has a middle finger to the establishment. I don't think anything has fundamentally changed there. And in fact, irony of all ironies, if you look at the polling right now, the real clear politics average for, I believe, this week, it shows that President Trump's approval rating in year three has actually just surpassed what Barack Obama's was in year three. So there you go. I don't think there is substance or merit to this effort. I think this is all about a continued attempt to create smoke and run it up to the election. Because look, the bottom line is, if Nancy Pelosi was serious, she could go one of two ways. Either A, she could want a real impeachment inquiry, or B, she could say the American people are going to get the chance to impeach by voting him out of office in 2020. That she has not said that shows you, I think, the fallacy of this effort, the phoniness of this effort. Again, yeah, she'll be able to fundraise off of this. I don't see it. I don't see this as having any substantive impact. And we talked about the, the, the ratings here, the approval ratings and the like. It is truly amazing to consider when you have the entire political class averse to you and more than 90% of media coverage the way it is, that the president could still stand strong and withstand this. And I believe the Democrats have not figured out how to counter him. I don't really think they have a response. And I think the Democratic field is a reflection of it. I think that you're seeing folks come out and now even left-wing publications like The Intercept start to put out articles about all of the Biden's corrupt dealings. And, And notice, by the way, how the Biden story with Ukraine that is at the core of this impeachment inquiry, it always boomerangs back to the Democrats, just like Russiagate boomerangs back as Spygate to the Democrats. It always starts with them taking the first corrupt, unethical act. And the administration is portrayed as obstructing and engaging in all sorts of high crimes and misdemeanors because he wants to expose it. It's a joke. And I think anyone who is fair-minded recognizes it. We've seen an unprecedented, never-ending attempt to nullify a presidency by using all of these means. And meanwhile, as I said, the president has kept his promises to a far larger degree than any other president in my lifetime, certainly. And in my view, on on the foreign policy front, and as we've talked about on this show before, he has done maybe the single most important thing, and that is to reorient U.S. China policy back in terms of U.S. national interest and implement a comprehensive effort to counter the greatest threat to liberty in our lifetime, the greatest threat to our national sovereignty that we are going to be facing, likely for generations. But because of their hatred of Trump, we're all losing our foundational principles. So this transcends him. For them, at the end of the day, them being the establishment, and it's led by the left, but it goes beyond the left, it's all about power. They care about power. 
They are the ones who are the would-be dictators in the kinds of measures that they're taking against the president as a proxy for us, for we the American people. And they are abusing all manner of constitutional authorities in order to try to get this man out of office and to make it so that no one else will ever challenge them again, so that we the people will never challenge them again. That is what the impeachment inquiry, quote unquote, is all about. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Real quick, I want to focus for a bit on the White House letter countering Speaker Pelosi's quote-unquote impeachment inquiry because I think it just lays bare how phony and fake a measure this is. So Pat Cipollini, the White House counsel, he writes in part, The impeachment inquiry represents legally unsupported demands made as part of what you have labeled contrary to the Constitution of the United States and all past bipartisan precedent an impeachment inquiry. As you know, you have designed and implemented your inquiry in a manner that violates fundamental fairness and constitutionally mandated due process. You've denied the president the right to cross-examine witnesses, to call witnesses, to receive transcripts of testimony, to have access to evidence, to have counsel present, and many other basic rights guaranteed to all Americans, all Americans but the president. And he goes on and he lays out three major points. Your inquiry is constitutionally invalid and, again, violates basic due process rights and separation of powers. The invalid impeachment inquiry plainly seeks to reverse the election of 2016. There is no legitimate basis for it. I urge you to read that letter. I'll share that letter on Twitter because it lays bare just how fundamentally illegitimate this is and how Speaker Pelosi is violating norms, rules, and institutions. This is Ben Weingarten for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be back just after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we've been talking for most of the hour about impeachment. And I really do have fatigue over this issue because it is another invented controversy, invented scandal, a one long, never ending rolling scandal. It started with Russiagate and even before Russiagate. And now it rolls into what will probably be called Ukraine Gate. Lee Smith has been on top of this story from before day one. He's a longtime investigative journalist who writes regularly for Real Clear Investigations, The Federalist and Tablet. He's a senior fellow at the great eminent Hudson Institute and the author of a great new piece at Real Clear Investigations. It's not all about the Bidens, why Trump has Ukraine on the brain, and soon to be a book that I'm really excited to dig into, The Plot Against the President, the true story of how Congressman Devin Nunes uncovered the biggest political scandal in U.S. history. And I agree with Lee, incidentally, yeah. that Congress, Congressman Nunes is a true national hero who took on the intelligence community and is paying a similar price to the one the president is paying. But, Lee, first of all, thanks for coming mm-hmm. on, the, on the program. Let's talk about your newest article at Real Clear Investigations. Yeah. What do Americans need to know about Trump and Ukraine? Right. Well, thanks for inviting me on, Ben. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to your listeners as well for tuning in. Um, the case that I make in the story is if you look at the longer Russiagate thing, that um, especially right after the election, when all these allegations about Trump and Russia was controlled by the Russians, Putin was responsible for getting Donald Trump elected. If you look at that in detail, once you start pulling that apart, it's all built on Ukraine related allegations. There are a number of Ukrainian uh, America, there's a Ukrainian-American activist named Alexandra Chalupa who's in the middle of it. She's trying to get dirt on the Trump administration. There are Ukrainian officials both at the uh, U.S. embassy here or the Ukrainian embassy here in Washington 
as well as different people they're trying to get involved in Kiev. I mean, the main point that, I, that I'd like to make is, again, if you look at where Attorney General Barr and U.S. Attorney John Durham now are looking and who they're speaking to, they, um, you know, they're speaking to the Brits, they're speaking to the Australians, they're speaking to the Italians, they're speaking to the Ukrainians. And President Trump has asked all of our foreign partners, all of our allies, who appear to have been uh, some of their citizens were part of this. He's asking them to cooperate. The important point is this is what Americans did to an American presidential campaign, a transition team and a presidency. So even though there were there are foreign nationals who were put in the middle of this, of course, Christopher Steele is, 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 is the first name that pops to mind, the ex-British spy. Again, this is what Americans did. It's what Clinton operatives, Clinton campaign operatives did. And it's what Obama officials did to a presidential campaign. So I think that's very important to keep in mind, you know, as we look at other parts of the world that may have had some involvement, this is what we did. So if you look at that, if you take it like that, the Ukraine part of it, what we're calling Ukraine gate is right. An extension, a reboot, however you want to describe it of the Russia operation. And the reason that it's flourishing, the reason that it's not stopped is because of the press's involvement, because the press is not just publishing this stuff. The press is the press has become um, a central part of the operation. This was true with Russiagate, and it's true with this part of it as well. And it's very important, I think, for people to understand where our media is right now and active participant in this operation against Trump. It's such, it's such a vital point, and you've written so eloquently on this. And I wonder if in a, a minute or two, you could describe sort of what is the what are the ultimate implications when it appears that a, our press now is not in right. any way adversarial except against anyone right. who is anti-establishment, but rather is an active colluder, is a, effectively right. an information warfare agent right. Of these yeah. agencies that are working against the person right. who oversees them and who delegates his power to them. I and mean, what are the long-term implications when we were always told right. that journalists were mistrustful of national security and intelligence officials right. and they were there to expose the corruption? Right. Well, if you look at the, I mean, the Ukraine case is actually a little a, even more stark. Right. And it's not just the press. It's about Democratic Party officials as well. It's about people on the left. It's about liberals. Now, you can say whatever you want about the whistleblower, whether this is a, uh, a noble patriot who stood, who stood up for wrong in the executive branch, or it's just an operative. But here's one thing we know for sure. This is an active CIA officer. There is no one in the press. There is no one in the Democratic Party who said, hey, look, I hate Trump as much as the rest of you. And I want him out. And I, I don't even really have a problem with impeachment. I'd rather beat him in an election, but if we're going to impeach him, okay, fine. But I got to tell you something. The fact that we've put an active CIA officer in the middle of this, this is not going to go anywhere good. This is extremely bad. No one has said that. I think that's the first thing that we can look at. The fact like, what? This guy is in the middle of this thing having to do with a president? This is what we're going to do from now on? We're going to run intelligence officers against the president. So, again, it's extremely stark. But the fact that no one in the press, 
has talked about this, the fact that no one wants to mention this is that tells us a lot about where the U.S. media is at this point. It's not a media. We no longer have. I know this sounds extreme. I know it sounds nutty. Right. But we no longer have a free press. We've always known that the press is liberal. Right. That's that's not the issue. They are part of an operation. They are a larger. They are the central component in an information operation, because to get information to the public, you have to have a platform. The platform right now is the press. It's incredibly dangerous, hugely destructive. I hope that some things will. I hope that certain things will change, that there will be other media that will arise and will give us, again, some sort of sense of a press. But at this point, we do not have the press, the media that we did even a decade ago, even five years ago, as it turns out. We've been speaking with Lee Smith, a longtime investigative journalist. He writes great pieces at Real Clear Investigations and elsewhere, including this latest one that I urge everyone to read. It's not all about the Bidens, why Trump has Ukraine on the brain, and also has a forthcoming book that we'll be excited to talk with Lee about in the future, titled The Plot Against the President, the true story of how Congressman Devin Nunes uncovered the biggest political scandal in U.S. history. Lee, thanks so much for taking some time to come on the program today. Ben, thank you for inviting me on. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks so much. And I should add to what Lee just said, if we want to see what a real whistleblower looks like, a genuine whistleblower, well, one of the tells is that the government goes after them and tries to crush them. In this case, the government is putting this whistleblower out for all to see, or maybe to try to hide him, to try to make him appear to be the kind of noble patriot that Lee is describing. Regardless regardless of ultimately what his political sympathies are and what his ties may or may not be to one of the candidates, at least in the 2020 Democrat field, I would urge you, look at the media treatment and the documentation out there on this whistleblower and also how the ICIG, that is the intelligence community inspector general, has treated this whole thing very secretly, changing the guidelines to try to make this all line up. Look at this treatment versus the treatment of a man named Adam Lovinger. I've interviewed his lawyer, national security whistleblower protector, Sean Bigley, on my podcast, The Big Ideas with Ben Weingarten Podcast. Look up the story, I'll I'll post it on Twitter and elsewhere, of Adam Lovinger. Adam Lovinger was someone who worked in the national security and intelligence space, did tremendous work, valiant work, patriot, was pro-Trump, ultimately ended up getting destroyed Largely, it seems, because of those pro-Trump sympathies. There was a shoddy claim that he had taken one piece of documentation that was supposedly private and sensitive, but not really, and opened it up on an airplane. His career was ruined, lost his security clearance, his livelihood is over in the government. Look at what happened to him. A man, by the way, who exposed and brought to the attention of the folks in the office that employed Stefan Halper, remember Stefan Halper, who it seems was trying to entrap Trump administration officials, a source, an informant. Yeah, in part, the deals that he was retained under for our government, the projects that he was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do, were in reality, it seems like he was trying to go after a Trump campaign and then future potential administration officials. The person who uncovered those misdeeds and brought them or potential misdeeds or questioned at least these hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of deals that appeared to be phony. 
That was Adam Lovinger. He brought that to the attention of the government. He has paid, paid a massive price for it. I urge you, look at the story of Adam Lovinger again. I will post the link. That is what a real whistleblower looks like. And you'll see the reaction to him versus the diametrically opposed reaction to this other so-called whistleblower. And ask yourself, who is the real whistleblower? This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here just about at the top of hour one. We have been speaking a lot about impeachment and all of the associated issues relating to impeachment because impeachment is really sort of the the side story. And the real story is not just about taking down the president. It is about eviscerating our actual institutions, norms, rules, values, principles in a bid to take down someone, any figure who would dare challenge the prerogatives and the power of the political establishment. It transcends Trump. Trump draws their particular ire. I think they particularly hate him as a human being. So there's obviously animus and vitriol that is in some ways unprecedented. But what does it tell us about our putative leaders, the leadership class, the elites, that they are willing to throw everything away to take down someone who would challenge them? And by the way, they deserve to be challenged. They deserve to be challenged. I want to do a quick, brief transition into something a little bit more... Uh, shall we say, light, some levity, although it has real consequences as well. And then we'll talk about what's coming up in hour, hour two just momentarily. But you may have seen the news this past week that while she was out gallivanting in Africa, uh, in Djibouti, in Burkina Faso, and elsewhere, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, we found out this week, found the time to divorce her husband. And why is this a story? Okay, first of all, this is the husband that is not the alleged brother, if you've been following this story. This is a person who she's been tied to for the better part of 20 years. She married this man, Ahmed Hersey, back in 2002, but Islamically, in her faith tradition, as she has called it, not under U.S. law. They had two children over the next six years. They dissolved their marriage Islamically in 2008. In 2009, she enters a relationship with a British citizen, so right after she dissolved her Islamic marriage, with a man named Ahmed Nur Sayyid Elmi, who she marries according to U.S. law, so legally. They stay married for a couple years and then dissolve their marriage Islamically sometime between 2011 and 2012, I believe in 2011. Then she reunites with her former husband. And this husband, the other husband, the one who she married legally, there's substantial credible evidence, allegations out there to suggest that it was a fraudulent marriage and that it was actually her biological brother. You can read all this online. I can point you to the stories. I'm sure you followed it closely. So she gets back with this other husband, the original one with whom she had two kids right after dissolving this legal one, but not under U.S. law. Stick with me here. Gets back with her former husband who she had two kids with. They immediately have another kid. They stay together through this divorce. But in that time, In 2017, she finally legally divorces the potential brother husband. And then she doesn't marry this husband who she just divorced legally until 2018 legally. Why did she do that? Well, because we found out that she filed taxes jointly with Ahmed Hersey, this person who she was not legally married to at the time, at least twice it appears, 2014, 2015. And that was potentially devastating for her politically. 
Now we get reports that she is actually officially divorced, legally, the person who she only legally married in 2018, but who it appears she's really been together with for the better part of the last 20 years. Why do I bring up this story? Well, this family craziness is just a fraction of the story of Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And I've suggested in writing before, in, in a piece at The Federalist, that the real story of Ilhan Omar, or one of the major stories of Ilhan Omar, is her foreign collusion with Islamist anti-American adversaries, both foreign and domestic. You may have seen there's a picture of her meeting with none other than President Erdogan of Turkey back in 2016-2017 when she was a mere state representative, 2017. She's a state representative. Why is a state representative from Minnesota meeting with the head of a foreign power like Turkey? I have done extensive research into Ilhan Omar her background, her ideology, her ties, foreign and domestic, to adversaries of our Constitution, anti-American adversaries, very deep, longstanding, and she echoes their rhetoric and their policy positions. And I'm announcing here on the Buck Sexton Show for the first time publicly that I will be publishing a book. It'll be out likely before the end of this year or at latest early next year that will tell the story of Ilhan Omar and why she is more than just a progressive provocateur, more than a marginal squad member like the likes of Nancy Pelosi have tried to call her and the rest of her squad mates. Actually, I make the argument in a new upcoming book that Ilhan Omar personifies a left Islamist nexus that is actually engulfing the Democratic Party right now. The progressives are dominating the Democratic Party, and there are all sorts of indicators of this. Probably the biggest one being, look at the presidential field on the Democratic side. Their positions are almost indistinguishable, at very least directionally, from where the squad is. Even looking at the composition of the House itself, over 40% of Democrats in the House are members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. When that caucus started, there were all of, I believe, six members. Who was one of the founders? Bernie Sanders. I will make the case, chapter and verse, in great depth in this book, that Ilhan Omar is the heir to members of the left and Islamist nexus historically. She personifies it today. But more than that, she is a seminal leader in it, in this takeover of the Democratic Party. Willing takeover, maybe. Might not even be hostile. Maybe a willing takeover by the progressive class. I'm excited to, to launch this book. And if you want to sign up for updates for it, bit.ly slash bhwnews, bit.ly slash bhwnews for all the updates. Subscribe there. I'll let you know about it. All right. In the next hour, we will be talking extensively about the NBA, China, and what it all means for this coming global clash between the world's two great superpowers. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back just after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here at the top of hour two. And as I noted before the break, we're going to talk a little bit about U.S.-China policy, which has broken out amazingly over the National Basketball Association of all things. And as I'll get to in a moment, the NBA is just one of many organizations and individual firms that have kowtowed to China have been shown just unbelievable cowardice in the face of an adversarial regime, a regime with, that is antithetical to the U.S. in terms of its principles and in terms of its interests. And ultimately, they have prioritized profit, economic self-interest over national interest. 
And we'll talk about that in a second. Before this whole NBA kerfuffle started, China recently celebrated the 70th anniversary of the ruling Communist Party, which is about 90 million people strong, by the way. And it should be noted, and we'll talk about this a bit later with our guest Bill Gertz, that the Chinese military, the PLA, People's Liberation Army, is an extension of the Communist Party. It is not the Chinese People's Military, in spite of its name. It represents the Chinese Communist Party. There was a great piece in City Journal recently by an author named Guy Sorman titled Silence of the Chinese. And here's what he wrote about that 70th anniversary. I'll quote here. Communism was supposed to create a new Chinese society of fraternity and equality, not militarization and social inequality. The People's Republic, by corrupting the virtues of capitalism, is more reminiscent of feudal pre-revolutionary China. The country's average income gap is now one to three, exactly what it was 70 years ago, despite the communist vow to empower peasants. So bear in mind, that is in spite of all the massive advances that China has had, largely underwritten by us, we the U.S. specifically, and the U.S. specifically who led the charge to incorporate China into the world economic infrastructure and architecture that we have built, all of these different trading coalitions, opening up trade to them with any number of Western firms. This non-reciprocal relationship that has ultimately evolved, we empowered them. We underwrote the Chinese. And what did they do? They've stolen from us. They've lied to us. They've cheated us. They steal two to $600 billion worth of intellectual property every year. But meanwhile, for all of that, for all of the rapid economic growth that China has seen over the last few decades, still, country's average income gap is one to three, exactly what it was 70 years ago. But I thought that the socialists in this country told us that they have the path to prosperity. The Chinese have it all figured out. The article goes on. The Gini coefficient, a universal measure of income distribution, shows a massive gap, the world's largest, between China's richest 10% and its poorest 10%. No society on the planet, it turns out, is as unequal as communist China. Would you look at that? The greatest inequality in the world is in the greatest socialist communist paradise in the world. China's number one. Given the country's stupefying social polarization and implacable authoritarianism, one must wonder how the party manages to maintain its undivided power without any opposition. And it is true that if you look at the polls, millions of Chinese people, and whether or not they're being honest or not, still a significant percentage and probably a significant majority, support the Chinese Communist Party in spite of all this. So why? The author gives a few explanations, and I think two of them are really worth pinpointing here. A quote, one rarely mentioned in the West, but evident when speaking with native Chinese, is the party's reestablishment of peace and social order. The party operates a police state, but the population prefers this condition and even accommodates it in order to avoid repeating a century of civil wars and bloody revolutions. Even if the economy slows down, it seems to me most Chinese will stay loyal to the party so long as it maintains order. That's a very important point that you won't hear most people in the West talk about. Is it possible that other societies, other places with their own unique histories and cultures, prefer their system to ours? I would suggest the answer is yes. And if the answer is yes, then shouldn't that inform U.S. foreign policy? 
Certainly, if we had taken that perspective with respect to the Middle East writ large, we would have gone in many different directions than the ones that we've taken in the last 20 years to disastrous effect. Different peoples are different. That needs to be recognized. You would think the people who talk about diversity would recognize that there are diversity of peoples. Not everyone wants to live a Western liberal life like the one we have. It isn't all about going to school and getting a job and getting an education and the like for every people in every place. Or at the very least, they may prioritize other things around that. A fourth factor never mentioned that explains the status quo, fear the foundation of every totalitarian regime. This is commonly forgotten as regimes flood us with propaganda and statistics which may or may not be verifiable. And when these regimes fall, as the Soviet Union did, we find that fear still paralyzes people. Let me stop right here for a second. I wrote an article on China's one-child policy and just how barbaric and totalitarian that was. We're talking something that is in the last few decades, So we're not talking, as we'll get to in a a minute, in terms of the tens of millions of people that were killed by Mao and the Chinese Cultural Revolution. We're talking in recent years, Chinese authorities literally ripping children from their homes. And in some cases, it appears selling them on the marketplace. That's the nature of this regime. Central planning right down to the number of children you're allowed to have and what their sex is. The article goes on, since the days of Mao Zedong, the Chinese regime has ceaselessly modernized its surveillance apparatus to the point that all party opposition confronts the same fate. The few audacious ones, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, and the dissident Democrats, know in advance that they will pay for their opposition with their lives. Just look at Tiananmen Square, look at Hong Kong today. Continues, this suits the Chinese regime perfectly. The death in prison of Liu Xiaobao, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, is part of this machinery of fear that is at once up-to-date and traditional. Quote, you must kill a cock to frighten the monkeys, says a Chinese proverb often cited today. Fear is a powerful motive in the history of peoples. And the sad thing today is that we are acting out of fear in relation to China. And when we come back in just a moment, I want to talk a bit about U.S. firms cowering in fear to the Chinese Communist Party for fear and also greed. Be back in just a minute on The Buck Sexton Show, and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Before the last commercial break, we were talking about the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese regime, and how they rule in part by keeping order and because people have fear of the consequences of crossing that regime. For decades and decades... Our leaders, our experts, many of the same people who are the ones that we spoke about when it comes to the impeachment, quote unquote, inquiry, told us economic liberalization will lead to political liberalization. And we'll talk with Bill Gertz about this uh, in just a few minutes. They told us that if we just had trade, ultimately China would evolve from a communist regime to one that is more like minded. And there's this whole democratic peace theory where, you know, Regimes that are like-minded, governments that are like-minded, will never go to war with each other. As the Trump administration suggested in its national security strategy, the experts were all wrong. Economic liberalization did not lead to political and social liberalization. In fact, on the contrary, China has sort of uh, vacillated between sort of opening up, quote-unquote, and tightening up. But the opening up, I believe, and, and the record shows, 
was used to allow China to become a world power. And now you see with Xi Jinping, a consolidation of all the power in himself as the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, purging anyone who would potentially threaten his reign and making himself effectively leader for life. And the Chinese rhetoric of their military leaders and the likes of Xi and others is far more bellicose. You know, they threaten to attack U.S. ships, for example. They, and we've discussed this at length in prior episodes, have sought to militarize their man-made islands, extend their sovereignty over bodies of water that are strategically significant that are not theirs. And they're basically scrambling for power around the world through all sorts of initiatives, namely including the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been described, I believe rightly, as a Trojan horse. This week, for all the world to see, we have finally found some outrage in this country about what has gone on for decades. And it wasn't over the quote-unquote trade war that is in reality an effort by the Trump administration to use tariffs as a wedge, as a lever, to fundamentally reorient the economic relationship, which is a part of the overall relationship with China and this competition that we're finally, we finally realize and have acknowledged that we're in under this president. This week, we saw the National Basketball Association kowtow, cowardly, to try to appease the Chinese regime. Over what? Because one executive from the Houston Rockets had the audacity to basically stand with the freedom fighters in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, a place where democracy really is dying in darkness. I was in Hong Kong several years ago, and I have to say, even then talking to people, and you could see this in terms of the Chinese control over who could be elected in Hong Kong. Of course, they had to be from a hand-picked slate that was approved by the Chinese Communist Party. There's this concept of uh, one country, two systems. There's increasingly one country, one system. And you could see it even back then before the recent protests where millions of people have been galvanized to take to the streets courageously to fight for their freedom. Democracy really dying in darkness. One NBA executive for the Houston Rockets comes out and stands with them. And then all of a sudden, there's a massive onslaught against him. The NBA comes out against him. He has to recant his words, which he should have never done. He should have held firm. But why? Why did he back off? Well, there are billions of dollars in business between the NBA and China, as well as the shoe companies that are associated with the NBA who do lots of business in China. And God forbid you threaten that business by speaking freely about American values and principles. You have to be attacked. This story has exposed a couple things. The first is that woke corporate America, including the social justice warriors and the NBA, consists of a bunch of hypocrites, although not fully. They are hypocrites in that they pretend to stand for social justice, at least they do when it serves them, but not when you have a regime that is the antithesis of justice. Yes, they can stand behind their movements in the U.S., but they refuse to do so behind a totalitarian regime that's responsible for imprisoning between one and two million Uyghurs right now and imposing this massive totalitarian technological police state and threatening dissidents abroad and engaging in all sorts of nefarious acts that none of the people who work for the NBA would ever feel comfortable living under a system like that. 
So, yes, it exposes that they are hypocrites in terms of being social justice warriors on the one hand. But on the other, look, the likes of Colin Kaepernick, and I know that's the NFL, but the likes of Colin Kaepernick and his friends in the NBA who take the, the very similar perspective on these issues, they love the left. I mean, they stand with the international left. And who is the embodiment of the international left? Well, in reality, it is the Chinese communist regime. Yes, you'll say it's authoritarian. It is a communist regime. Xi Jinping does subscribe to a Marxist-Leninist Maoist view in his own words. China's the leader. China's the leader of their movement. So, of course, look, China and Cuba and Venezuela and probably I throw Iran in there, they all stand together. So it sort of makes sense that the woke corporate crowd, woke capitalism, stands with the Chinese. But two, we have a serious problem regarding cowardice of big companies and organizations that do business in China who self-censor and cave to the Chinese Communist Party. And in the wake of this, we've seen a number of acts that go beyond just attacking this Houston Rockets official and the official sort of CYA efforts of NBA officials, including the commissioner. For example, ESPN, another woke corporation, Almost unwatchable now, which is sad because as a kid, and I'm sure it goes for the same for many of you, you wake up every morning and watch SportsCenter and look forward to it. But ESPN is now almost unwatchable besides live events, and even many of those you have to put on mute, I'm sorry to say. ESPN this week, which is always political, told reporters explicitly, don't be political when it comes to talking about anything relating to Chinese politics or Hong Kong or any of the related issues there. That would be one thing if that was the official line within the organization on every other issue, but it's not. Why only on this issue? And then ESPN went out and used a graphic in their reporting. I'm going to refer to a tweet here about this. ESPN reporting from China this week opened their 7 a.m. sports center by showing a China graphic, including the unlawful nine-dash line in the South China Sea. Could we bow any lower, O wokest of networks? Great tweet by Brian D. Litticote at Senor Senor Drool Cup. Thank you for that, Brian. What does that graphic entail? Well, it means that China has full sovereignty over the South China Sea, that nine-dashed line. They don't. But ESPN is essentially towing the Chinese Communist Party line, literally, the party line. But ESPN and the NBA and the shoe companies and all of these players who are coming out in these the most cowardly of fashions, like Steph Curry saying, well, you know, I just don't know too much about the issue, don't want to rock the boat. They rock the boat on all sorts of issues they're completely ignorant about. They won't touch China. Why? Again, because they have millions of dollars at stake here, billions of dollars at stake when it comes to the NBA. And the NBA is not alone. And I've been writing about this, by the way, since 2018, and reporting goes back significantly before that about all the companies that have kowtowed to China. So, for example, January 2018, Marriott International put out a survey First reward club, and it listed Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, and Macau as independent countries as opposed to Chinese territories. A U.S.-based Marriott employee liked a tweet endorsing Tibetan independence using a corporate Twitter account. The Chinese government reacted angrily. They forced Marriott to shut down its six Chinese websites and mobile applications for a week. And the offending tweeter faced disciplinary action. As I wrote in this article at The Federalist that I'll share on Twitter, in an episode reminiscent of a hostage begging for mercy on state-run television for a crime he never committed, the president and managing director of Marriott's Asia-Pacific office was quoted in China Daily saying, quote-unquote, this is a huge mistake, probably one of the biggest in my career. 
Marriott's CEO also bowed to China, saying Marriott International respects and supports the sovereignty and territorial integrity of China. They're not alone. Fashion company Zara had a drop-down menu on its site, similarly listing ter- its territories, various territories as distinct from China. Audi had a map in, a, in an investor presentation depicting Tibet and Taiwan as separate. The Chinese government rebuked them. More than two dozen other corporations have faced backlash from the Chinese government, including airlines like Delta and Qantas and now Cathay Pacific over the Hong Kong issue, and medical device makers, again, overlisting Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, and Macau as separate entities. February 2018, Mercedes posted a Monday motivation quote from the Dalai Lama. China went after them for it. Increasingly, China demands of foreign businesses that they conform to Chinese Communist Party political narratives. And more than that, they even demand that the party be empowered within the businesses. They're literally Chinese Communist Party cells within foreign businesses who may have oversight over decisions. These are multinational corporations in many instances, many of them founded here and based here, headquarters here, who are towing a Chinese Communist Party line that is antithetical to the U.S. The U.S. national interest has to trump economic self-interest because ultimately that economic self-interest will be our undoing. As the saying goes, we are going to sell the communists the rope with which to hang us. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll talk about all of these topics and more with Bill Gertz just after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. All right, and we've been spending a significant amount of time during this episode talking about China because this issue has finally emerged as a national issue because of all things the National Basketball Association. I mean, what are the chances that of all the leagues and of all the businesses, this would be finally the one that hits the vein when it comes to U.S.-China policy. We're about to talk with someone who is an expert on the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese regime, their long-term goals, strategies, and ambitions. My guest just about now is Bill Gertz, national security columnist for The Washington Times and a senior editor at The Washington Free Beacon. He's the author of many books on China and otherwise, specifically around national security and intelligence. His latest is called Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. It's out from Encounter Books, which, full disclosure, I do some work on behalf of Encounter Books, but I love this book regardless of that association. Bill, you're on The Buck Sexton Show. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Ben. Good to be on the program. All right, Bill. So let's start right here. What do you make of what is going on with the NBA right now? You know, we've talked in in detail during the show about the nature of the league's response to the Houston Rockets executive and then the back and forth with any number of players coming out saying, well, we're not really sure we want to criticize China. Uh, What do you make of all this? Well, I think it's a bad omen. Uh, This is a, a major company that's making billions of dollars and the NBA, and uh, they basically ca- caved in to Chinese communist demands to moderate the free speech of their employees in order to maintain a business relationship. This, to me, uh, epitomizes the control that China is seeking to assert, uh, not just on the United States, but also globally. In other words, say anything bad about China or say something that China disagrees with, and you can't do business with China, or you'll be uh, blocked from uh, coming into the country. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, to me, this, this is the way that China will 
assert its influence and power uh, once it becomes the dominant power in the world. It's not a world that we want to live in. It's, it's a world lacking in freedom, lacking in liberty, lacking in human rights. Uh, it's uh, a real horrible sign for the future. When all the experts told us for decades that economic liberalization, that is free trade, quote unquote, which has turned out to be unfree, would lead to political social liberalization. Essentially, that if you just have commercial relations, ultimately the party with which you're having those relations is going to become like us, like us in the West, liberal, free, tolerant, pluralistic, diverse. It really seems that not only has the opposite been the case, but we have sort of converged towards China. In other words, they haven't bent to the Western system we've converged towards their system. What do you make of that? Um, sure. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right about the, uh, uh, the, what I call the 40-year gamble of uh, trading and engaging China across the board um, with the idea that this would have a moderating influence. <clears throat> it's been an utter failure and a failure on so many different levels. Economically, uh, from a security standpoint, uh, I can remember back in the Clinton administration that we shared uh, cooperation on the nuclear front, and it ended up the Chinese stealing our nuclear warhead secrets. So it's a, uh, it's a major problem. I, I think that <clears throat> the U.S. is now changing. Under Trump, the president has said, look, no nation can survive losing $250 billion to $600 billion annually in um, uh, intellectual property, which is what a White House report said last year. So he's trying to pull back. Uh, I think we're in a new Cold War with China. Only the, the only problem is for so many years, only the Chinese were waging it against us. Yeah, they have, as, as you noted, at least a 40-year head start on this. And, and I think one of the fundamental questions that we have to answer as a country, and we're only beginning to start asking it, which tells you how perilous our position is and has been, is the question of, can you do business with any Chinese entity when in reality, every company in China serves at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party, which is clearly antithetical to us, not only from the perspective of ideals, but from the perspective of actually seeking hegemony in the world. And I do want to talk about that separately. But Ultimately, do you believe that America has to decouple from China, that is, sever our business relationships, or at least put that threat on the table for there to be actual, tangible changes on the ground? And obviously, there are any number of business executives who would hate that concept. Do we have to decouple, though? Uh, yeah, I think we do. And, and the first step in doing that, I think, is we need to be clear and honest about the nature of the system in China for... <clears throat> For, like I say, many decades, the Chinese have foisted the deception that they're not really communists, that even though they, uh, you know, their, their regime is the, the legacy of the deaths of 60 million people under uh, Mao Zedong. That and I think we need to be clear that the China threat is its ideology, and they are communists. Uh, I've traveled there, and you go to the, the People's Liberation Army Museum, and you see the statues of Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and Stalin, and you know that that's the problem. So we need to be honest about the, the system, that it's not a, uh, a capitalist system. The idea of engaging with them has not worked to, to modify that. In fact, it's become more communist. Uh, Xi Jinping has become like the new Mao, and uh, we need to decouple. Now, we can't do it all at once because for the last 
35 years, we've been totally engaging. The government told companies, just go to, don't worry about the security threats, don't worry about the economic threats. Now, we need to gradually decouple and start looking for new markets. And they're out there, Uh, India, other places where we can do business without having to, our our economy so intertwined and leveraged politically by Beijing. So you, you mentioned that China's sort of hegemonic aspirations. And when you listen to the experts, and I'm going to put that in, in scare quotes here, the experts on China, they always say, well, look, China wants to be the dominant player in its region. What evidence do you see that China actually wants to be the sole global superpower and not just the dominant player in Asia? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, one of the guys I quote in my book is uh, Mike Pillsbury. He's a, a scholar on China, and he was he did some groundbreaking work for the Pentagon in the 70s. Uh, he went to China, and he collected a bunch of military writings. And uh, what these writings showed was that what China was saying publicly about wanting to be friendly and not being a threat and seeking a peaceful rise was totally contradicted by what the military was telling themselves internally, which is that the United States is the main enemy. They have this uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party conspiracy that the United States is engaged in a massive uh, plan to contain China and prevent China from becoming a modern state. Um, Xi Jinping has kind of outlined his uh, ideology, his version of Chinese communist ideology in something called the China Dream, which I think is the Communist Party of China nightmare. And it's basically to uh, have China assume its, quote, rightful place in the world as the dominant power. And so that's kind of what they're working for. And he's been doing that through something known as the Belt and Road Initiative, which, again, is the economic tool. Um, the Chinese are are deeply into what they call unrestricted warfare, the, all forms of warfare, and economic warfare is one of them, political warfare uh, and others. And they're buying up countries and by doing this uh, infrastructure development. Say they'll go into a country, uh, say, we want to build a railroad for you, and we'll even help you with financing for it. And then all of a sudden, they charge exorbitant interest rates. The country can't pay back the money, and the Chinese say, well, this is our this is our railroad now, and by doing that, they're trying to increase their dominance over the uh, developing world as a way to encircle the United States. Yeah, it's what I would call a loan to own strategy. We're going to provide you financing for all these major infrastructure projects and the like, and bring you into the 21st century. And oh, by the way, when they go belly up, you can't afford them. We'll take them over. And basically, what this allows China to do is have ports of power digital and real ports of power all over the globe. That is their strategy. Their strategy is to play on our perceived economic self-interest, which really ultimately serves their strategic interest. And one of the places, infrastructure-wise, where China is most dominant and may pose the greatest threat of all when it comes to everyday use of very basic technologies and very sophisticated technologies as well is in the realm of 5G, fifth-generation networking, and Huawei is the dominant Chinese player in this space. Speak a little bit to what it would mean if Huawei is the dominant player building 5G networking communications infrastructure around the world and what that would mean to the U.S. and our freedom. Yeah. Uh, Huawei Technologies is a basically a state-run Chinese telecommunications giant 
masquerading as a private company. And they are on the march in terms of trying to corner the international market on the infrastructure used for this 5G technology. And again, 5G is a quantum leap from fourth generation telecommunications, providing extremely fast and large amounts of data transfers. It requires a lot of uh, a lot more of the repeater stations that you see today on cell phone towers. And what they want to do is they want to get their standard, uh, their electronic standard in the hardware set up in all these places so that they can basically, through that uh, hardware and the software that goes with it, uh, provide the back doors and the controls that they need. Uh, the military, the Pentagon has said this is a, a, a strategic vulnerability for the United States if the global uh, internet structure using 5G is controlled by the Chinese, they could literally cut off, block, or uh, disrupt U.S. military communications, tra uh, transmissions, navigation, key, key players. So that's, that's kind of what's happening. Uh, the, the U.S. and the West and the European telecommunications have been at a disadvantage because of these giant state-owned uh, te Chinese telecommunications companies, m the most prominent one being Huawei. And so this is playing out right now. I'm not sure how it's going to end uh, and whether they will do it, but there's some new technology out there that can secure uh, the 5G networks. But I think that's kind of the way they're going. It doesn't look like U.S. and Western telecommunications companies can catch up to what the like companies like Huawei and another called ZTE are doing. Just a very sad commentary. We've been speaking with Bill Gertz. He's the author of the new book, Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. And Bill, if you can stick around right after this commercial break, I want to talk a little bit about what are some of the solutions that the U.S. can impose upon China and implement in order to counter this existential threat to our way of life. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here on The Buck Sexton Show. Back in just a moment. We're back on The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And I want to continue and conclude our conversation with Bill Gertz, who we were talking with just before the break about China's hegemonic ambitions and some of the ways in which they are going about trying to achieve them. So, Bill, we've talked about China's dominance in, in the all-important 5G technology. From a military and national security perspective, and, and talking here not just about sort of hard power, but also intelligence and counterintelligence, how far behind is the U.S., and what can we do to get back in the game against China? Well, um, you know, Rob Spaulding, uh, former Air Force general who used to be in the White House, had a proposal uh, which called for the government to get involved in the 4G development because it's so critical to both national security and, and commercial interests. So <clears throat> I think that's probably one idea. Again, a, a lot of the tech companies uh, blanched at that and did not want to do it. But um, the first solution for me is that we've got to understand and recognize the, uh, the nature of the threat. And uh, President Trump has done a remarkable job in resetting the debate over China. But it's not over. Uh, even within the Trump administration, there are forces and people and officials who want to continue the unfettered engagement policy with China, basically for, for business and money. 
And so, <clears throat> so it's going to play out over the next few years. Uh, we know that the Chinese are, are trying to work against uh, the president. Uh, uh, Vice President Pence in October of 2018 gave this remarkable speech where he said that the Chinese want a different president and are working against him uh, through various covert influence operations. I'm very worried about that in the coming election, that China could try to trigger some type of uh, economic downturn here that would uh, undermine Trump's reelection bid. Uh, but uh, again, so the first thing I would do would be to for the government, the State Department, to produce a book length white paper on the Communist Party of China, because the issue here is not the Chinese people. They want to get rid of that system. And time and time again, going back to the 70s, the United States has bailed out the Communist Party of China. And it's a uh, it's a horrible regime. I mean, just look what's going on in uh, Western Xinjiang province, They're, they've imprisoned between a million and two million people. And um, in Tibet, uh, they've proliferated weapons to our, our most uh, worrisome enemies like North Korea. They've, they've given uh, missile transporter erector launchers, which are now carrying uh, long range North Korean missiles that can range the United States. And all of this has not been made clearly public. And it needs to be done, not just by an outside private think tank or something, but by the government. Yeah, you know, I've long held that if you want to see how China is going to deal with us and the rest of the world, just look at how China treats its own citizens and those in its near orbit. It is a very scary sight down to things as ghoulish as organ harvesting. I, I mean, just an unimaginable, unimaginably cruel and tyrannical regime. And it is not worth the, the short term profits for the long term loss as a culture, as a civilization to continue down this status quo in, in just a minute or so. Can you lay out for us some of China's pain points? What are China's weaknesses? Because they are not all-powerful and they are not destined to dominate. Yeah, I think the biggest vulnerability for the Chinese is the lack of legitimacy of Communist Party rule. Um, they have had this uh, basically a totalitarian system. People don't want to call it that. They want to say it's authoritarian. But it, it fits the definition, and I, I highlight this in the book, of a totalitarian system that dominates uh, controls and seeks uh, total control over the population, and any does not allow any dissent, and, which results in in death or imprisonment of of its citizens. So, uh, it's 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 vitally important to really uh, look for uh, some some ways to uh, focus on changing the Communist Party of China. I think it can be done peacefully. I think that the party has lacks legitimacy. Uh, the problem, of course, is their intelligence and security services and their military. The People's Liberation Army, or PLA, is not a national army. It's a party army. It would be as if the Democratic Party had its own army. Don't give them and, any ideas, uh, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, really, I think the biggest vulnerability would be to expose the corruption at the highest levels. Uh, and this is something I plan to do in the future through some, some investigative reporting. Let's look at some of the investments of the Chinese leadership. And let's look at some of the Western investment in China that has bolstered this, uh, this horrible Communist Party of China. We've been speaking with Bill Gertz, author of the great, vital new book, Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. Bill, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Ben.
And this has been Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here on The Buck Sexton Show. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here at the top of hour three. And in this third hour, I want to talk a bit about some of the more fundamental underlying issues facing America. The impeachment inquiry, quote unquote, obviously gets to part of this. The U.S.-China issue on the international side, the national security and foreign policy side, also gets to a part of it. And I want to parse this two ways. The first is, if we are going to avoid disasters, both foreign and domestic, there needs to be actual justice for people who have perpetrated injustices. There cannot be a double standard of justice. And it kind of cuts multiple ways here. So on the one hand, you have a news item like this this week. Senator Chuck Grassley, who heads the Senate Judiciary Committee, put out a letter signed by a number of, of course, just Republicans, writing in part, and this is to Attorney General Barr and FBI Director Ray. A full year has passed since the Judiciary Committee completed its investigation into allegations of decades-old misconduct by Brett Kavanaugh in the course of its consideration of his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. During its investigation, the committee interviewed numerous individuals claiming to have relevant information. While most of these individuals appear to have contacted the committee in good faith, some did not. So the committee went ahead and referred four individuals to the DOJ and FBI for investigation of potential violations of, and it goes through the U.S. code numbers here, regarding materially false statements, number one, and obstruction, number two, for false statements made to the committee during the course of its investigation. It also referred two of those same individuals for potential violations of conspiracy code in the U.S. statute. We seek information about what actions DOJ and FBI are taking in response to these referrals. Okay, so this is one issue, criminal referrals regarding Kavanaugh. But it, it reflects the much broader issues of how many inquiries are there out there into all sorts of illegal and lawless things that have been done by our authorities against us, against the president, against the American people, with the president as proxy. Is there ever going to be any justice for the people who have perpetrated this onslaught in illegal ways? So, you know, we have the Horowitz report or reports out right now. Uh, any day, presumably, some one or two of them will be dropped and they touch on things like abuse of FISA, which involves surveilling Americans. We have the Durham investigations ongoing. We have A.G. Barr's look into Russiagate and Spygate more broadly. Is the clock going to be run out on these issues? Are we going to have more game playing with redactions and the like? And these issues, while they are domestic and they get to core pillars of free society, they also have national security and foreign policy implications. So you might not have seen it, but there was a report out this week by the Wall Street Journal that is pretty darn significant. The title of the article from the journal was FBI's use of surveillance database violated Americans' privacy rights, court found. U.S. Here's the subtitle. U.S. discloses ruling last year by foreign intelligence surviso, sur, foreign intelligence surveillance court that FBI's data queries of U.S. citizens were unconstitutional. And the article goes on to write in part that, quote, 
The intelligence community disclosed that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court last year found that the FBI's efforts to search data about Americans ensnared in a warrantless Internet surveillance program intended to target foreign suspects have violated the law authorizing the program, as well as the Constitution's Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches. The issue was made public by the government only after it lost an appeal of the judgment earlier this year before another secret court. The court concluded that in at least a handful of cases, the FBI had been improperly searching a database of raw intelligence for information on Americans, raising concerns about oversight of the program, which as a spy program operates in near total secrecy, unquote, of course. So here's the problem with this abuse. On the one hand, we have more impressive technology than ever before at collecting communications and being able to spy on adversaries. On the other hand, it seems like the people who are spied on are us, (laughs) And those who represent us. Because they view us as the real adversary, it seems. Their, their acts certainly suggest that. So what do you do? Do you curtail the ability to use the kind of surveillance powers that we have because they've been abused? Well, the problem with that is that then our adversaries really will be able to run circles around us. I mean, they already are in many ways. So what do you do? Yeah, I think that the question of liberty versus security is sort of a false choice in many ways. And if you have a real, truly free society, you won't have any conflict between the two. But there's a problem of the weakest link in the chain or the lowest common denominator here having access to these powers and abusing them. If you strip the powers, though, then the adversaries will really have carte blanche to do whatever they want, to hide their activities and to plan attacks on us steal our intelligence. These are major problems. So the undermining of our fundamental pillars here potentially has massive consequences for what foreign adversaries do against us. All of this predicated on the false, phony, Russia stole the election, treasonous, Russian collusion conspiracy, president being a traitor narrative. There are real, major, far-reaching consequences, and we have not even been close to getting to the depths of just how pervasive these problems run and how extensive they are in terms of the implications for us as a society and as a society vis-a-vis all of our adversaries. I want to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about fundamental underlying problems that go far beyond government abuse and corruption. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we're spending this hour talking about some of the fundamental challenges facing the country. But I do think it pays to make one last point about the impeachment inquiry, quote unquote, and just how brazen a violation this is of actual constitutional powers and the corruption that we're seeing laid bare, the rot in our system with a defense against impeachment. Let's go to the clip right now. The effect of impeachment is to overturn the popular will of the voters. We must not overturn an election and remove a president from office except to defend our system of government or our constitutional liberties against the dire threat. And we must not do so without an overwhelming consensus of the American people. There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment supported by one of our major political parties and opposed by the other. 
Such an impeachment will produce the divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come and will call into question the very legitimacy of our political institutions. We have no right to overturn the considered judgment of the American people. Mr. Speaker, the case against the President has not been made. <coughs> there is far from sufficient evidence to support the allegations, and the allegations, even if proven true, do not rise to the level of impeachable offenses. Mr. Speaker, this is clearly a partisan railroad job. You may have the votes, you may have the muscle, but you do not have the legitimacy of a national consensus or of a constitutional imperative. This partisan coup d'etat will go down in infamy in the history of this nation. Who was that valiant defender of Donald Trump, and when was he making these arguments? None other than current House Judiciary Committee Chair Gerald Nadler defending Bill Clinton from impeachment back in 1998. There is no better quote, in my view, that first of all, truly on the merits weighs out how fundamentally unfair, corrupt, phony this impeachment inquiry, quote-unquote, is against the president. It underlies that the emperor has no clothes here. Gerald Nadler making the definitive case in defense of Donald Trump against impeachment. And that should be played over and over again for the next year because it underlies just how phony the Democrats are here. Now I want to transition to something more fundamental that gets to the core of how we could ever have a leadership class, quote unquote, like the one that we have today. A leadership class that in large part seems intent on eviscerating the fundamental values and principles on which the country is based because they do have a base of voters, some of whom are useful idiots, some of whom are true believers, some of whom probably haven't thought it through all the way. There was a very revealing survey put out. It was an NBC News, Wall Street Journal poll in August 2019 that I believe did not get as much focus as it should have because it actually says a lot about where the country, how rapidly the country has progressed down the regressive progressive road over the last couple of decades. It actually really goes back, if you look at the historical numbers, to 1998. So during the Clinton years, I guess you can see this steady collapse in many ways of American society or portion of it since that time. So what did this poll reveal? The poll asked of respondents whether they considered a series of topics very important, quote unquote, and included among the, the prompts were questions about God, family and country. Three fundamental pillars. They really transcend political ideology, or they should. Less and less do they transcend political ideology because these used to be things that united Americans of all political stripes. And we've totally lost that consensus. And the polling numbers reveal that. So between 1998 and 2019, the importance that those surveyed have ascribed to each of those core pillars, God, family, and country, has declined precipitously, rapidly. By 2019, in 1998 rather, 62% of respondents rated religion very important. By 2019, that number had fallen to 48%. 62% to 48%, below a majority. In 1998, 59% of respondents considered having children very important. By 2019, that number had fallen to just 43%. 
1998, 70% of respondents considered patriotism very important. By 2019, that number had fallen to 61%. So God, family, and country declining. And the polling data is even more troubling when you parse it by age cohort. So millennials and members of Generation Z, which is the generation after millennials, which comprises people 18 years old to 38 years old, so the future of the country, they rate far lower, very important, these categories, than those over 55. A mere 30% of these individuals rank religion very important. Alarmingly, only 32% consider having children very important. And only 42% consider patriotism very important. So if you have no faith, you don't believe in continuing to grow the country, and then you don't believe in love of country, how will you survive as a nation? And on this last point on patriotism, by the way, the data is consistent with a bunch of other polls. So a 2018 poll conducted by YouGov on behalf of the Foundation for Liberty and American Greatness found that one in five millennials, so 20 percent, believe the U.S. flag is, quote unquote, a sign of intolerance and hatred. And nearly half of millennials and Gen Zers do not agree that America is the greatest country in the world. 2017 Pew Research Center survey similarly found U.S. stands above all other countries in the world rather than that there are other countries that are better than the U.S. These questions break by age and political orientation. Those under 30 years old rate other countries as superior to the U.S. by a 16-point margin, while conservatives rate America as superior by a 10-to-1 rate. Liberals rate it as inferior to some other countries by a 2-to-1 rate. Again, the decline in religiosity... Devotion to building families and love of country among the next generation of voters and leaders indicates America is going the progressive's way. We're consigning core elements of our civilization to the dustbin of history, not conserving them. And and the question becomes then, if this is where your culture is and this is where the future of the country is, and as we'll talk to in just a bit, where future generations are likely going based upon the nature of where our schools are today— where popular culture is today. How can you survive as a country? How can you survive as a country when you're taught to loathe your country? When you don't believe in growing the country? When you lose all faith in anything? But America hasn't lost faith in everything. Among this progressive cohort, a large percentage of which, though not all, is enthralled to sort of a secular, humanistic viewpoint, uh, some very hostile to traditional religion, others who are religious but view their religion as sort of a gateway to their leftist ideology in many cases, not all obviously, but there's certainly been corruption of both the church and the synagogue when it comes to leftist ideology, especially among those uh, who subscribe to less religious sects. What has filled the place, the emptiness of this loss of faith in these kind of fundamental core values, principles, institutions? Well, the secular, secular religion of statism. For many, progressive politics have become a religion of sorts. And you see, some people have made the argument, I think rightly, that environmentalism for some has become a religion. And you could argue that scientism itself has become a religion for many people. Man has replaced God. 
and I don't mean to go down a religious exegesis here. Something has filled the void, and I would say the state has filled that void in many cases. And we've seen all sorts of polls showing how socialism is growing more popular, and maybe socialism, you could argue, is a religion. And again, I would argue it's in part because it is filling this void. One question that's not often asked, though, is why? Why are people motivated to go towards socialism? And there was another set of polling that I thought was really telling here, just was released, uh, I think, in the last week. And it's from a Cato Institute study, and it was written up in The Federalist, and it caught my eye. So the poll measured a couple things. It measured compassion versus resentment. And then it asked a bunch of political questions associated with those sympathies. So in part, and I'll quote here, to measure a person's level of compassion, the survey that Cato put out asked respondents if they agree or disagree, quote unquote, I suffer from others' sorrows or quote unquote, I feel sympathy for those who are worse off than myself. And then to measure resentment towards the successful, the survey asked if respondents agree or disagree, quote, very successful people sometimes need to be brought down a peg or two, even if they've done nothing wrong. Or, quote, it's good to see very successful people fail occasionally. And guess what the data found from this survey? And obviously take every survey with a grain of salt. The data implies that those who support tax increases on the rich and wealth redistribution may be motivated by resentment or compassion, but they are more likely to be motivated by resentment. That is a very telling statement because I think it gets to the heart in part of leftism and progressivism and what its core beliefs are because there's a veneer of virtue signaling and wanting to do good for people through wealth redistribution and through government running things as opposed to free people making decisions for themselves and the whole economy arising based upon that fundamental liberty. If it's resentment and envy, then of course the progressives are regressive because they would be against the progress that capitalism and liberty have enabled. Envy and resentment, however, destroy individuals and they destroy societies. It's aspiration that leads a society to ultimately survive and thrive. So when you look at the democratic field and the progressives today, think about that envy and resentment as the underlying impetus and how disastrous that is for actual progress and for the maintenance of our civilization. Next, we'll talk a little bit with someone who is working through the organization to try to protect and preserve our civilization, and then we'll offer some solutions shortly thereafter. This has been Juan Garnin for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back just after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. All right. In a prior episode, you might recall that we talked extensively about what The New York Times has dubbed the 1620 Project, their attempt to recast U.S. history as being based fundamentally in the fact that this country allowed slavery to start, to persist, and that slavery, that fundamental illegitimate seed antithetical to our founding values, is actually the seed from which every American institution has sprung, thereby making every U.S. institution, as I understand it, and based upon the way that their editor has explained it and many of the articles in the 1620 series of articles have described it, making every single one of our institutions as well 
fundamentally illegitimate. If you've heard that kind of perspective on U.S. history before, it's because it's exactly what the New York Times has been putting out for years. It's what you see in history textbooks. And it seems like another attempt to fundamentally chip away at institutions like capitalism, our entire economic system, uh, to attack the founding fathers, and ultimately to once again kind of degrade and demoralize American history and ultimately distort it, demoralize the American people, and cause us to turn against our fundamental values and principles. That's how I see it anyway. We're about to talk to Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. And NAS is just a vital organization when it comes to sort of fighting disinformation that comes out of academia and media, exposing the biases, and then presenting alternatives. And they do so in a very objective way, in a deeply researched and thoughtful way. These are not political diatribes. These are deep thinkers and scholars, and they've put out some excellent research and reports. I've talked, for for example, before about the Confucius Institutes, and I urge you to listen to my interview with Rochelle Peterson on that effort by, yes, once again, China to infiltrate academia and ultimately impose their nefarious designs on us. But today we're going to talk with Peter about the 1620 Project. Peter, thanks so much for launching that project, and thanks for joining us here on the Buck Sexton Show. Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm looking forward to this. So, so Peter, first, is my understanding of the 1619 Project correct, and what do you see as the aims of the New York Times in launching this initiative? Uh, Your understanding of it, I think, is spot on. Um, It's the 1619 project. I think you said 1620, but that's our project. We uh, pushed it ahead one year. 1619 is when the time says uh, slaves were first introduced into the New World. Uh, 1620 is the year in which the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock and signed the Mayflower Compact, which is in some ways the beginning of the American search for liberty. Uh, Why is the New York Times doing this? Well, I think that The deepest motive of it is to try to uh, persuade the American public that they need to elect a progressive president in 2020. This is a deeply political effort on their part to poison the minds of voters that uh, in the direction that you described. That is that America is so irredeemably racist and uh, has been affected by racism in every institution that we need to have the kind of leadership that embraces that concept. The Times readership is shrinking these days, but its power over the minds of educators, K-12 and college, the American intellectual elite still remains considerable. And they are using virtually the entire newspaper these days to uh, emphasize this theme that it seeps into movie reviews, book reviews, sporting events, anything that they can write about where they can find a racial angle becomes a piece of their 1619 project. They launched this on uh, August 18th. That was a Sunday with a uh, full magazine section and a separate uh, newsprint piece uh, running well over 100 pages, laying it out that America is just a really rotten place and has been from the beginning. Now, they're wrong on endless amounts of details, not that that slows them down. 1619 was not the first year in which slaves had been introduced to the New World. That had happened over 100 years earlier. The Spanish were bringing slaves in. 
and Native Americans were enslaving people, including Europeans that they captured. So it's, it's a kind of false premise with which they begin, but it's false all the way through. The pursuit of liberty in America meant that great accomplishments were being made, even while the institution of slavery was unfortunately taking root. But this country paid an enormous price in uh, blood and the wealth of the country in fighting the Civil War to eradicate the institution of slavery. The residue of it remains in some places and in some institutions, but it's certainly not in any commonsensical way the basis of American society, economy, our religious and cultural life, which have long since shed off any remaining elements of the slavery complex. So we're gathering together scholars across the country and asking them to write about the particular pieces of this history that they know best. We're bringing them here to our offices in New York and creating a library of videos that will be part of our refutation of this. We expect to hold conferences and things like that. But to really drive this forward, we are trying to get ourselves in front of state boards of education and school boards around the country, the places where we fear that the 1619 project will really set in as a, a deep infection in how uh, American school children learn our history. They're going to be learning a false history um, or a fake history, if you will, that uh, has to be stopped someplace. And it's hard to see exactly where the uh, the uh, beat policeman will stand up and say, stop. So in the absence of anyone else doing it, we're volunteering. And uh, we hope to have some effect on this. And you noted, and it's it's been quite explicit, actually, because an, an internal meeting of the New York Times this year uh, it spoke to the fact that the paper seeks to make racism the fundamental issue or a fundamental issue going into 2020. And the 1619 Project, I believe they pretty much say explicitly, is part and parcel with that effort. But obviously, there's the broader, long-term sort of ideological warfare element of this, which is that the Times is actually trying to, and you sort of allude to this, change the history curricula in schools across the country to promote this false fake history as you describe it, and essentially poison young minds for generations to come. How ultimately can we, those who love America and who have a true understanding of our history, combat these efforts? Because the schools, as as you have documented in great detail at NAS and as all of our listeners know, the schools are sort of lost institutions right now. How can we push back? Well, if you're a parent, what you can do is make sure that your children read and learn some real American history. There are plenty of good textbooks out there. I'll mention one that's uh, Bill McClay's Land of Hope. It's new this year. It's uh, certainly at a reading level that's uh, right for middle school students, but there's many others. So one thing is to take hold of the problem at home and address it that way. The next thing is get involved with the election of your school board officials. Every school district in the country has the opportunity to say no to this and to end the propagandizing of the uh, children who are subject to whatever it is the uh, 
people coming out of our schools of education think is a good progressive way to prepare children. Um, if we have a school board that is willing to draw the line in any particular school district, we can stop the propagandizing in that district. And if we do this across the country, we can basically create a firewall around this uh, uh, I hate America jihad that the New York Times is launching. Peter, we're going to have to leave it right there. Where can interested listeners go to learn more about the 1620 Project and the work that you'll be doing going forward? Uh, Come to our website at nas.org and follow the links there. We're trying to put as much as we can up on this, and we welcome volunteers all the time. Well, appreciate all your exceptional work. We've been speaking with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the program and for all NAS does. Great. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And to conclude today's show, we've talked in the last hour or so about kind of the problems facing the country, fundamental core issues. And I want to get to some solutions to it by way of commemorating the life of someone who recently passed. This week, this Tuesday, October 8th, America lost a scholar whose work you may not have known, but you should have. Michael Yolman was a professor of politics and government at the Claremont Graduate University. I had the opportunity to meet him on several occasions, both in an academic and scholarly capacity, as well as in a friendly one. He was a man of immense intellect, charm, and character, and you could grasp that from the moment you met him. And the Claremont Institute, of course, is just a tremendous resource of thought and scholarship on America's founding values and principles. I'm a fellow there, and I urge you to read everything you can from the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind, which is sort of the online outlet for shorter-form articles from Claremont. Michael Yeoman is the kind of person who you read about in history books with a resume that you rarely see among anyone. One of these very impressive people who doesn't necessarily get the full kind of uh, acknowledgement that they deserve in the political establishment, certainly, but a well-respected scholar. And I want to take a few minutes to talk a little bit about his contributions. Now, Yeoman is someone who graduated from Yale, received the equivalent of a law degree before they had JDs at the University of Virginia, PhD from Claremont Graduate School, where he studied under legendary conservative scholars like Harry Jaffa and Leo Strauss. But he was no ivory tower academic. Yeoman was in the political game. He put forth a landmark report in the late 1970s in defense of the Electoral College that the Senate Judiciary Committee used as their minority report. And it's still relevant today in an age where the Electoral College is under attack by the left. He later served as a counsel to Senator James Buckley, the other Buckley, William F. Buckley's brother, who actually had another amazing career, a giant still living, still writing books and churning out materials, a a true lion in the classical liberal, big L liberal cause. And then Yeoman served in a number of senior capacities in the Ford and Reagan administrations, including as a special assistant to President Reagan, associate director of the White House Office of Policy Development. And by Justice Clarence Thomas's own account, Yeoman pushed him to become a judge in the late 1980s. He then worked as a lawyer in private practice and ultimately, as noted, became a professor helping impart Yeoman, his theoretical and practical wisdom to students. So I urge you to read everything that you can from Yeoman. And in response to an award that he was that he received in 2018, uh, he delivered a lecture that you can find. I'll, I'll share it 
uh, after the program today, uh, where he talked about where he sees the country going and what we have to do. And I think this gives you a bit of a measure of who Professor Michael Yeoman was, as well as some practical steps that we can actually take as a country to combat some of the ills that we've discussed during this episode. So I'm going to read in part from that speech. Talking about what a professor told him back when he was still a student, the professor intoned despairingly, in Yeoman's words, quote, your problem is that you refuse to acknowledge the abyss that lies before Western man. Every time it appears on the horizon, you go looking for a ladder, unquote, which is to say Yeoman was preternaturally optimistic. And he goes on here. He saw something in me that I was scarcely aware of at the time and remains true of me today. So be it. It may not be morning in America, but until darkness becomes a permanent feature of our life, put me in the camp of little orphan Annie. The sun will come out tomorrow. And then Yeoman goes on to present a plan. First, take back the government from the spend, spend, tax, tax, elect, elect crowd by saving us from the entitlement abyss. Yes, the attainment of that goal will be threatened by, threatened by all sorts of political third rails, but God made economists for a reason, and there are many sophisticated remedial plans to engage your thoughtful attention. Lest you despair at the challenge that lies before you on this front, I remind you that in 1775, Americans decided to take on the world's most powerful army and navy with far fewer resources than you can call upon today. The time is ripe, and if your generation doesn't reform entitlements, no one will. Here's your first ladder. Start by creating a political entity for young people analogous to the AARP. Demand a seat at the table, make politicians feel the heat, and insist that entitlements be fixed so you and your children can work for someone other than government for the rest of your lives. While you're at it, imitate the AARP by selling insurance profitably as you save the country. Second, the administrative state can and must be tamed. The immediate salienteers to get Congress back into the constitutional game, which is to say that those who exercise regulatory power must be made accountable to the people. And this endeavor will require assistance from the judicial and executive branches, to be sure. Not an easy task, but by no means impossible. Stop complaining about the size and arbitrariness of government. Do your homework, grab some more ladders, and get to work. He goes on the third item. You need to arm yourselves for the struggle that lies ahead. You will need allies and inspiration. Start with biblical injunction to increase and multiply. Get married and have children in that order. Raise them to be right and proper ladies and gentlemen who will help old people to be right and proper ladies and gentlemen who will help the old people, sorry, across the street and say, sir and ma'am, when addressed by their elders. Teach them to be brave, to obey the commandments, to work hard, to do their duty, and to be on time for supper. As they prattle upon your lap, tell them stories about heroic deeds, the truths that made America great and lovable, and why those truths must be defended. And he goes on, fourth, do not despair. There is always hope. As William F. Buckley said, the wells of regeneration are infinitely deep. Tear a page from G.K. Chesterton. Along with various other literary nobles, the great man was once asked what book he would prefer to have if stranded on a desert island. Some respondents said the Bible. Others said the complete works of Shakespeare. Chesterton replied, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. That's the spirit you will need to remediate the major crises of our time. Finally, and most importantly, take time to know your creator, to acknowledge his beneficence, and to give thanks for his gifts of life, love, and laughter. That's a beginning of sorts, is it not? And enough work to keep you busy until your children are ready to take your place. By then, of course, if you do your work well, perhaps a statesman may arise who will have earned his reputation talking about sunshine and ladders. Now, go and do your duty before darkness covers the earth. Michael Martin Yeoman was 79 years old. We should do everything that we can to heed his words. 
I want to end on that optimistic note in celebration of this man, his ideas, ideas that you can implement in your own life and that you need to pass on to your children and your grandchildren if we're to save this country. I want to thank Buck Sexton for the opportunity, as always, to fill his tremendous shoes. This is Ben Weingarten from New York. Feel free to follow me on Twitter if you were excited by the show. I'm going to share a bunch of the links that we discussed during the episode. It's at BH Weingarten. Please subscribe to my newsletter at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash B-H-W news to find out about my upcoming book on Ilan Omar and much more. This has been Ben Weingarten from New York. Thanks so much for joining us.